people, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 293. Can you believe it? As the day this episode is released, we're just 42 days from September 1st. That's insane to think about. It's coming quick, and all of us here at Exomont Gear are super excited about hunts in September, as well as some before then and, and many beyond. I hope you guys are getting prepared for fall. I uh, hope this show is helping you do that. And if you need anything from us, from Exomont Gear, don't hesitate to reach out and we can get you set up. Everything's shipping in just one to two days, which is great. On this episode, we're speaking with our buddy JD. As you'll hear about, he has experience as a guide, hunter, and also has worked professionally in the optics industry. And so he pairs his firsthand knowledge of product with real world in the field experience. And we have a conversation all about glassing. So yes, we talk about selecting optics, but I also wanted to dive into how to use those optics. How does JD pick apart country? What is his glassing strategy? What does he use for support? Any other little tips and tricks to help us glass more effectively and so much more. So we cover all that in this episode, and I know that you guys will pick up some tips from it. As always, guys, we appreciate your feedback. You can always email podcast at exomountaingear.com if you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us. And definitely stay tuned. We have some new podcast series that are coming, a lot of prime time, crunch time information to help you make the most of your hunts this fall. So stay tuned for that. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you do receive those future episodes automatically. But right now, let's dive into this conversation with J.D. Ponciano. J.D., welcome to the Hunts Back Country podcast. Excited to have you join us, man. Thanks for having me. It's uh, good to catch up with you guys. And we owe J.D. a bunch of gratitude for hooking us up with Jerry there at Foxtail. So it's kind of the, <laughs> the guy that set up the whole uh, our Kodiak hunt. And man, that's I'm actually going back, J.D., in uh, a couple of weeks to go fishing, taking my dad and brothers. And then uh, and then a whole gaggle of us are going up in November again. So That's awesome. I was thinking about Jerry on my run this morning. Uh, my I, Obviously, I want to go back up and hunt. I got to go two years in a row, and I haven't been back in a few years. Um, but my wife the other day, she was like, you know what? I really want to go up there and fish. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I'm just so excited that this was her idea. So I'm hoping to <laughs> line that up here soon. Oh, nice. But I, I love Jerry. Jerry's just one of my favorite people on the planet. He's a lot of fun to be around. And yeah, I don't know about you guys, but uh, the trips that I did, I gained weight. And I'm like, Jerry, we're packing out deer every day. I should not be gaining weight. <laughs> yeah, it's like Thanksgiving dinner every night. Yeah, uh, definitely the only multi-day hunt I've been on and come back heavier for sure. <laughs> Those but, short days too, that makes it hard. You're eating a lot. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, you're in terms of the podcast audience. Yeah, JD, you may not know, but your claim to fame is all the conversations Stephen have, Stephen and I have had about Kodiak is all your fault. So thank you. <laughs> um, but besides that, besides that claim to fame, uh, I guess just start off with like a personal introduction, background, uh, share what you want there, as well as kind of involvement in industry, things like that to help guys get to know you. Yeah. So currently I'm a territory manager for Zeiss. I've been in this role for a few years now. Previous to that, um, I had a retail business um, where I, I carried uh, Zeiss uh, as well as other optics companies. Before that, it was um, archery equipment and way back in the day when First Light had retailers. Um, previous to that, I worked for, uh, I guess, my kind of intro into the industry right out of college. Um, 
I started with another optics manufacturer and previous to that, my dad's a guide. So I've kind of been in the industry my whole life going to trade shows and that kind of stuff. Um, I spent a number of years guiding too, uh, but now I'm a big sissy and don't like being away from my wife and the kids any more than I have to. So um, just the um, current gig, the territory manager role, and I uh, really enjoy what I do. I'm, I feel very fortunate with the folks I work with and obviously a lot of people that I've met along the way. Um, you grow long-lasting relationships. This industry seems so small. A lot of the time you go to a trade show and um, it seems like there's a lot of your buddies there. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, we, in this episode, you know, when I thought of like talking about glassing and the combination of yes, getting into gear and talking binos and spotters, but also talking like strategies and really how to apply glassing techniques. I thought of you because you obviously, as you, you said there, you have the background and even current experience on the product side, but that's all informed by your history as a guide and currently to this day, still a super passionate hunter. So you're not the guy just at the trade show talking, but you're out there using stuff all the time. And so that's a, a good marriage. Would you say that like your use of optics as a hunter personally, like, do you rely heavily on glassing or is that just purely situational? And by that, I mean, it obviously depends on the hunt, but some guys are just more prone to either preferring to or enjoying spending a ton of time behind the glass versus, you know, maybe other strategies uh, on a specific hunt. Yeah, I think um, several things, but I, I enjoy just looking at critters, whether that's whether I'm on a hunt or not. Um, optics has always been something that I just would do anything not to sacrifice on. I mean, because my dad's a guide growing up, I got exposed to really good optics as a kid. Um, and then I was like everybody, you know, I went to college and was broke and didn't have any money. So I had some, you know, binos that came with a rangefinder kind of thing. And you learn the hard way that it's just, it's not as enjoyable. Um, but the glassing into things, because I enjoy it so much, I feel like that's helped me. Um, the biggest thing is just slowing down. You know, I used to um, just feel like, you know, the, the further I hike and um, the harder I go, the more I'm going to see. Well, you can bump a lot of critters doing that, but um, it's a lot harder to kill them that way. So um, spending more time glassing um, has helped me just, if I, if that's my approach, you know, that I feel like I'm more successful because I will notice things that uh, I didn't used to um, starting near to far, you know, on a, on a hunt where I've, I've got very vivid uh, images in my head of times that I blew it because I was looking across the Canyon instead of right under, right under my nose. Um, so spending more time um, just being patient and uh, glassing and making sure that you peel apart an entire area um, so that you don't cost yourself something that was kind of a layup. Yeah. Got it. So we wanted to cover honestly a lot of ground in this episode and some of this is going to address things we've talked about before in the podcast. Some of it may be based knowledge to listeners with more experience, but be helpful to guys who are newer. And I think you know, we were talking before the show, there's going to be something in here for everybody though, because there's a lot of personal preference and little things that uh, I've observed other hunters doing in glassing that I've learned from. And I want to try and tease some of that out uh, from UJD and Steve about just little personal strategies, right? But let's, let's talk... Um, before we get into gear, before we get into like strategy and what you are doing when you sit down to glass, it comes up often talking about vantage points and even picking glassing locations. And this is especially true. Maybe you're, you're headed into 
a new area, you're doing some work in like Google Earth or Onyx Maps or something like that. But for you, JD, and again, you can relate this to different ways for different seasons or hunts or terrain, but like, what are you looking for first and foremost when you're looking for a glassing location? I get it is obviously very situation specific. Um, and like the images that first popped in my head are like up a, up there in Kodiak. You can spend as much time as you want on Google Earth, but until you're in that situation, everything just looks so different from what it did on the computer. Um, and I guess you get better at just getting a feeling for where the animals should be. And even if that's a new area, um, just finding if you're looking, you know, uh, from one hillside to another, just the spots that you're like, you just get that intuition that, hey, I, I typically when I stop, um, I'm always going to try to sit down, put binos on a tripod um, and peel apart the area. But I'm obviously going to do a quick scan before I do any of that to make sure nothing's, you know, right there close enough to get a shot. Um, and that, that's another big thing. I, I used to fight the using a tripod because of, you know, the time to set up and do all that. But again, being more patient that it just causes you to, to move more slowly, to peel apart the entire area. That's been such a big thing for me that um, when I'm getting to a setup, if you, whatever you crest a ridge um, or you're looking over a big basin um, and looking in those areas that you're just like, man, I just feel like they're going to be near that patch of brush or whatever the case is to do that quick scan. And then um, obviously getting comfortable, like up there on Kodiak, one of the things that was kind of unique to, uh, to deal with was the grass being so tall that a lot of the time you can't sit and, and glass uh, from the most stable platform from as low as you can, because it's so tall. It's like you, you have to stand. So um, a lot of the time up there, I was using a tripod fully extended and just, um, you know, obviously I want to get as low as I can, but if you can't see through the grass, it doesn't do you any good. So um, it kind of goes back to the, every situation is, is unique. I've, I was thinking about this morning, um, the different setups and, I mean, hunting blacktails on the West side, I've been to where I've had to be on a knee looking underbrush to try to, to glass. And that's like, that's such a weird, uh, unique scenario versus what a lot of time in the West we're used to, you know, looking over these big giant expanses to try to pick something apart. Mm. Yeah. So you find even in areas where the country's maybe not as open or you're dealing with thicker cover, you're still finding glassing effective essentially. Yeah. I mean, I, um, your setup is going to a lot of times be different. I'm a huge fan of glassing with 15s. Um, people, a lot of times will say that's too much magnification. Well, if the close focus on them is under 10 feet. Um, it's really not, there's not going to be a scenario where you're going to run into where that's too much magnification. You can still look at stuff up close. Um, but for those times where you're primarily glassing, you know, cross Canyon, you're going to be able to pick things apart that you may not pick up with a, a lower power, lower magnification. Um, 10 power being, you know, obviously the most popular, especially in the West. Um, but even with eight or 10 power, I still recommend people to try to put binos specifically on a tripod. Um, and just that it's, it's so hard. Like we were talking about, it's, um, every situation is so unique that it's really difficult to just say, I feel like people always want the, um, kind of one size fits all answer for it. And it's just so unique to each situation. Um, that, uh, guiding was one of the times where, you know, you'd run into, uh, 
you sit down and the client you're with, they do a scan for 10 seconds and they're like, are we going to keep going? And you're like, no, we're going to be here for an hour. You know, you got to, you got to peel apart the area. Um, and how many times that that's paid off to where, you know, if you just kept hiking, yeah, maybe you would have run into more critters, but um, just obviously it's easier to get set up and take a shot, whether you're archery hunting or muzzleloader or rifle hunting. Um, if you're already got your gear and everything ready to go in one, one spot. This was not like planned and I feel like I'm skipping ahead, but um, do you do anything specific when you sit down to glass and we'll get into talking about like tripod benefits, yada, yada, yada. But aside from your optics, so aside from the tripod, whatever optics you're using, do you any, do you do anything specific with your other gear? Meaning like if you're rifle hunting, are you purposely like keeping your rifle accessible in a certain way? Are you deploying it on a bipod? So it's closer to get behind Do you, um, have your pack situated under the right, like, I know that's all rifle specific, but maybe not even just with the rifle, anything else that you're kind of like, you're setting up your entire uh, area essentially uh, when you sit down to glass for say an hour. Yeah. So the rifle example is a good one. Um, first, when I stop moving, one thing I've noticed a lot, um, the way people hold binoculars, uh, we tend to just grip them around the barrels. That's, that's the most common thing people do. Um, and if you'll get used to running your thumbs rearward towards your eyes um, and gripping the binocular slightly more towards the front of the binocular, you're just going to be more stable than you would if you were just holding them around the barrel like most people do. Um, and <clears throat> when I show that to people, a lot of times, even people who are very experienced, very good at glassing, um, they've never tried it. And so uh, once you start doing that as your, you know, kind of baseline for, hey, I'm, I'm just looking for game. Um, that obviously just being more stable is going to help from the get go. Um, if I'm rifle hunting, uh, typically I do have a bipod. Um, so on, on the gun. So what I'm going to do is, um, get the bipod set up to where most likely scenario is if that's across the Canyon, I'm going to set up my pack. I just, in that order, I'm going to take my pack off, lay it down, usually put it under the rear of the rifle, um, have the bipod facing forward, and then just kind of have a really quick, Hey, where would I try to lay down prone and shoot if I was, you know, opportunity presented itself. Now, a lot of the time I'm not in a position where I one even need to shoot from a prone position because I'm not shooting quite as far as a lot of people are now. Um, but, um, especially guiding, I used a lot, uh, like a Primo's trigger stick, just because it's, you can throw that in front of somebody and adjust it really, really quick, um, whether they're standing or seated. Um, and for folks that may not be as comfortable um, getting set up to shoot, it's just a really easy, you know, uh, stable platform to get onto. But then it's also another thing that I can provide for the person that's with me to glass from um, and getting to the, you know, I don't want to keep jumping back to the tripod thing, but most, um, especially if it's a client, you're not dealing with somebody who's going to have a tripod. So if I'm using my binos on a tripod and I've sat down and, you know, I've gone through all that stuff that we already talked about, um, but then I can hand them that uh, trigger stick and they have at least that to glass from it's giving them a more stable platform than they would have had if they're just hand holding. Mm. Yeah. And you could do something similar with like, if a guy didn't have a trigger stick, but has a trekking pole, like again, there's, yeah. there's varying levels of like stability, right? So, you know, you can freehand with no support. You can have a trekking pole or trigger stick providing some support. That's clearly not going to be as stable as a tripod and essentially use what you have and work your way up to the most ideal. 
Yeah, I'm trying a new one this year. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's called the Wiser Precision. So it just um, connects your your trekking poles. Because I I used to make fun of guys that use trekking poles, and then I started using them. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so I just have them all the time. And so I feel like it's something that, um, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a really easy thing. It's already there. It's on my trekking pole. So why not have it as another uh, platform to be able to glass from? Yeah. Mark, Mark had those in Kodiak when we went two years ago and it was like a game changing accessory in my opinion that, that, you know, as you pointed out, the grass was so tall. there, so unique that just, you got to get a, to, to get a stable rest. It's got to be, you know, three feet off the ground. And those things were incredible for that. And as a rear support. So, um, I go to a lot of shooting schools. And so um, every shooting school is different. Some places you're going to shoot from a bench, some places you're going to shoot prone, but other places it's more hunting specific where a setup like that, they're just going to hand you the stuff that you would have on a hunt. And they're going to say, shoot at 600 yards or whatever the distance is. And so obviously just trying to shoot off of a front rest, you you still have the the wiggle of the rear. Um, Mm -hmm. So using having the ability to, uh, I just don't really hunt that much anymore by myself. Um, So usually my hunt partner and I can split things up to where, you know, if he has trekking poles and I have trekking poles and we both have that um, wiser precision on there, you have a front and rear rest really quick. Um, And being more stable, uh, you know, nobody's going to complain about having a, a, a more stable platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've Steve and I are actually doing this when I was out there not too long ago, we just went up in the mountains were shooting and I was showing Steve how I was shooting with the wiser quick sticks up front and then essentially standing the pack vertical in the back and almost hugging it from like a seated position um, and allowing the pack and especially with our frame to be a good support on the rear. And that, I mean, that can do wonders for sure. Having that front and rear, no matter how you do it. Yeah. And you, you were asking about, you know, what uh, setups, I feel like I've shot more off of the pack as a rest than any other um, use, even with a bipod to where it just seems like actually last year in Montana on an elk hunt, um, the grass was, wasn't uh, chest high, but it was, you know, two and a half, three feet tall. So tried to get laid down to shoot. And I was like, well, I got nothing but grass. So you end up throwing your pack up and it's like, well, it's just high enough to where I can get the shot off. Getting into those positions, though, that's one mistake I think people make with optics is that they only really practice in the ideal conditions. It's like going to the range and shooting off of a concrete bench, you know, in the best conditions. It's just rarely going to be like that out in the field. So if you can, you know, like you guys sound like that you go up in the mountains and you're shooting from elevated positions and um, up and downhill and different positions where you have to figure out a way to get comfortable and solid that's the only way you're going to be ready come crunch time. Cause I know I'm, I get nervous and do stupid things when a buck steps out or a bull or whatever. So um, if you've practiced it enough and you're just uh, kind of in go mode to where you don't have to think about it because um, you've done it enough times practicing, then it's going to make it more likely that you'll make that shot. We are, uh, we're bouncing all over and I knew it'd be the case cause all these topics are like <laughs> interconnected, but uh, going back to glass and locations and Steve hit on this, but especially for guys who are newer, to doing a lot of glassing talk about sun and shadows and how that plays a role in choosing a glassing location based off of maybe time of day. Um, so the, the ideal thing, um, for me, obviously is if you can try to have sun at your back, but I just feel like every time I set up in a big basin, every image I can think of in my head, whether it's Colorado or whatever Western state, I will get to a glassing point and it feels like you're glassing into the sun. So, um, 
yeah, it's ideal, but I just, um, you know, it feels that way to me. Maybe it's just coincidence, but, um, even things in that setup, um, I'm having images from a few years ago in Colorado, glass in these big basins to where even simple things like using a hat or whatever to shield the sun to where it's more comfortable um, to look at. Obviously, you're going to get to a point in the morning where, you know, that sun's just right in your face and it's going to limit the direction and how high on the hill you can glass to. Um, but that kind of goes to, um, you know, when you're out there, you know, hopefully you're already out there, you know, well before sunup to where you've got quite a bit of glassing in and you haven't wasted you know, most of the morning because you got there late. Anything to add to that from your perspective, Steve? No. Yeah. I mean, I think the only time I plan where the sun's going to be is on a scouting trip, right? Like, like, all right, if I'm, I'm going to hike this loop, it makes more sense if I hike it in this direction than that direction. Cause that, you know, in theory, it puts me on this peak glassing, you know, in the glassing West in the morning and then East in the evening and just trying to use the sun to your advantage. And then, you know, try to plan travel times where I'm walking ridges midday and I can see down into shadows. You know, this is kind of more, more specific to like a mule deer hunt. Um, but it's, it's definitely something to keep in mind. It's just also as JD's saying, like unavoidable sometimes like the animals are where they are. And this is the, the one vantage point you have to see the country and there's just nothing you can do about it, but it's, it's a huge disadvantage when, you know, yeah, at 9 a.m., all of a sudden that sun comes over the mountains and it's glaring right off uh, your glass and your face, and you just you can't see the other side of the mountains. Huge, huge, uh, uh, you know, disadvantage. So, I know for me, a lot of the a lot of the hunts I'm going on, you don't have the ability to go pre-scout. It's too far or whatever. Um, my first hunt this year will be an August mule deer hunt, and so I'll I'll do a couple trips uh, there before I um, actually go hunt. So I'll have that ability that Steve's talking about to <clears throat> learn some of the glassing knobs and go, well, I sure as heck don't want to be there at 9am looking that way. Um, but a lot of the time, you know, if it's Colorado, it's a two day drive or wherever you're hunting, it's not likely that you're going to get that scouting trip in. So you just kind of have to make do with the, the situation. I feel like anytime we're talking about like glass locations, finding vantage points, et cetera, everyone's just automatically assuming like go high, gain the high ground, get that advantage. But at certain times, certain circumstances, the way certain country lays out, sometimes it could be better to glass from below. So for either of you guys, do any specific situations come to mind for that? Or how do you evaluate that where it's maybe it's like, well, maybe the best advantage isn't gaining all this ground, but it's actually staying low and looking up into a basin or something. For me, I've like, it's pretty rare that a hillside has that kind of that concave shape right typically have a, a convex if you're like down in the bottom of it so you can mm. you know the, like false summits right you see those yeah, all the time. Rounding like, oh, over. That, yeah it's rounding over so it's there are some hillsides um that just immediately come to mind that you can glass really really well from the bottom one of my favorite deer spots you just hike like 100 yards up the other side and you can see the whole mountain um i just find those are really rare um, typically you just got to gain some elevation and get across from something. So, um, I was just on Google earth yesterday, like looking for my first, uh, scouting trip for my sheep tag, you know, and, and I just, just basically panning around and looking for like, all right, this is the area. What are my vantage points? You know? And, and I found one, like, you know, these two draws and kind of a big elbow on it. And right on top of one of the elbows is a pretty prominent, like look like a hundred yard, just flat spot it would be 
great place. And then, you know, I get in there on Google earth and double click a couple of times to, it takes you to ground level view and you can pan around and it's like, yeah, this is going to be a great glassing spot. I got to climb 2000 feet up to get to it. Um, and it's on the same side of the mountain, you know, like the, across the drainage and look and climb up the other side and glass across would be like three and a half, four miles. And like, that's probably too far to be picking out sheep. Um, so yeah, I think you just, for me, I just use all the tools that are available. And then oftentimes you just got to get boots on the ground and, you know, like, Oh, down no, this isn't a good glassing spot. Never mind. Um, sometimes it, it could be a great spot, but there's trees and brush and you can't ever get a clear view of the, the hillside that you want to look at. So, um, you just got to, do your homework and then get there and, and adjust as needed. Yeah. Last year I took my brother on his first archery elk hunt and we were hunting real early in September. So they weren't doing a lot of talking. So we were doing a lot more glassing and what Steve's describing with the shape of the hill, we spent more time, you know, that middle uh, half of the hill uh, regardless of where we were, because uh, several things. One, if you'd get to that upper third, you know, above timberline, um, there might be a tree or two, but if you were glassing from that spot, you're, you know, 150 yards from any cover. So even if you get, you know, some elk that feed out, you don't have anywhere to try to, to make a stock. Uh, um, and then if you got too low, um, not being able to see uphill because of the timber and same thing to see the bottom, you know, bottom third because of the, the timber that's in there, um, just maximizing the area that you can see. And it's kind of one of those field things you have to get to that position on the hill to figure out, well, this gives me the best vantage from here to see the most country. So going back to, uh, we're at a vantage point, whether that's, you know, mid mountain, high, low, what have you, we talked a little bit about, uh, JD, what you're doing with other equipment, like your rifle, but, and you, you've touched on this in passing, but I want to pick apart, like you sit down, you know, you're going to glass in this area for, you know, a good little bit, half hour, hour plus, like, how do you start picking apart country? So are you like immediately super analytical laying out a grid i'm going to move here to there are you making that scan with the naked eye just to the most obvious places like open patches or maybe able to spot something before you get in the glass and then kind of like dissecting your way into you know needing to to pick country apart further with the glass like in the end like what you sit down to a new area to glass like what is your strategy what's the process of how you're actually picking apart that country yeah, I have some really vivid uh, times that I've screwed up coming into mind. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, what you mentioned about am I scanning with the naked eye? I was elk hunting in Oregon with a buddy, and uh, it was pretty open where we were. And we stopped, and we had seen a bull across uh, canyon, and we were finally within you know what should have been what I thought was like a hundred yards. Well, the, the bull was feeding toward us that whole time. So <clears throat> I did a scan with my eyes, you know, kind of a 180 degree scan, didn't see him, took a few more steps. And if I had used binos, I would have seen that he was walking right at us. And uh, I would have maybe got a shot off instead of just watching him take off through the timber. So um, trying to always, and um, as soon as I stop, do obviously a quick scan naked eye, but I'm, if I stop moving, like my natural reaction is I'm pulling binos out of my bino harness. Um, because of those times that even at a hundred yards or, you know, a relatively close distance, things that you can obviously pick up with your binos that you wouldn't with the naked eye, um, and always starting again, near to far, because I just have screwed up way too many times where I'm like, Oh, that looks really good over there. And the whole time there was a 
buck looking at you within our tree distance. And I just was looking right over the top of them. So um, always, you know, standing, <clears throat> pull out binos, quick scan, but then I usually immediately try to sit just to get as comfortable as I can with a tripod. Um, and again, that's not always going to be conducive, but um, for the most part, I can find an area where I'm going to be able to put binos on a tripod. And I don't have a specific um, technique as far as the, the thing that I'll do is just grid the entire area. So I'll set uh, binos on a tripod and then put that on the hillside or whatever, you know, area I'm looking at. And I won't move binos until I've looked at every, you know, square inch of that uh, image. And then I, I'll try not to move on to the next area until I've peeled apart everything. And then you can usually, um, whether you do it like reading a book or if it's, you know, top to bottom or however is most comfortable for you, um, but usually I'm going to back to the feel thing. If I just feel like there should be animals in a certain area, whether that's because of water or cover or whatever, um, I'm going to start there and then grid from that area. And again, I'm usually with somebody. So I'll try to have them, you know, it's pretty natural. You sit down right next to each other because you want to be able to at least whisper BS while you're sitting there. But um, if possible, try to not spread out a significant distance, but be able to see, you know, different parts of the area you're looking at, because obviously different vantage points, you're going to pick up different angles and maybe see something that the other guy wouldn't have. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. I've uh, yeah. It's a, you're with a buddy. It's I've found it very advantageous to, to get 20 yards apart, 50 yards apart, hundred yards apart, you know, and just, you're like, sometimes in certain country you move a hundred yards and it's like, you're looking at a whole different place. Uh, and other, other times it doesn't matter. It's all open and you can see everything, but if it's got a kind of broken up country with lots of nooks and crannies, just getting slightly different vantage points can make a huge difference. Um, for sure. The other part splitting up that has helped is finding another glassing point that, you know, if, if you split up 50, hundred yards, whatever, and the other guy comes over and it's like, dude, I can see, you know, hundred miles from over here. we got to move. That happens too, where you'll come to a spot and you think, Oh, we got a great spot right here. And then you go around kind of the curvature of the hill and you're like, Oh no, this is a way better spot. We can see the whole bowl from here. Yeah. yeah. Anything uh, like different or kind of intentional that you do, Steve, kind of just back to that idea of, okay, I'm going to glass from here. Like, how do you do it? I don't like um, a narrow field of view, right? So that's kind of why I prefer prefer eights over tens um, or or binos on a tripod over using a spotter. Like I like to see the whole picture and look for movement. So if I get to a glassing spot, I really pick it apart with my naked eye for a good little bit. Um, just kind of, yeah, like as JD saying, look close, make sure there's nothing close. Obviously certain kind of just dictated by the country. If there's, you know, it's nothing but open sagebrush, uh, you know, you don't have to look very long, but yeah, I'll look, um, look close and then look far with my eyes, look for movement. I mean, you'd be amazed how far you could spot a deer or an elk just with your naked eye. Um, and then as he said, the first thing I do is like, okay, where can I sit down? Um, and you know, if I think about my process, it's typically sit down, use my eyes again, get, get my binos out. And I'll just, usually my first go-to is just glass the, um, immediate spots that I, you know, as again, JD was saying is like, that looks like there should be a deer and elk there or a bear or whatever, you know? Um, and just, yeah, use my, 
uh, elbows on my knees, get as stable as I can and just pick stuff apart real quick. Um, and again, situational, if it's, uh, this is would this would be, if say you're glass and hillside, it's inside a thousand yards, like something to where like, Oh man, there's a deer right there. You could, you know, cover 500 yards pretty quickly and make a shot. So I just kind of want to like glass the area real quick. Um, make sure that all the obvious spots, there's nothing. And then, then, yeah, then I'll pull out my tripod, mount up the binos. Um, and I'm not, I don't have the patience to grid. So I just, I really bounce back and forth between like, I look at the whole hillside with my naked eye, like, okay, I think a deer should be there, get in the binos, pan around that area. Um, and then I just kind of bounce back and forth like that of, of just scanning a hillside with my eye and then use my binos to get a closer look at something. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, some, some country, some glassing spots are like, man, I can see everything from here. Other ones, um, if you're solo, you know, I spend 10 minutes here, move 50 yards, 10 minutes there, move 50 yards, 10 minutes there. Um, you know, it just, the, the country is going to dictate, um, what I'm doing and also the, the time of day, right? Like if it's morning or evening and, and animals are up and active and feeding, you can, you have a better, you know, you're probably better just to stay put midday if they're bedded and, or if they get up to feed, but they're not moving very far then, then, uh, you know, if the country's broken up enough, you need to kind of spend, you need to glass and then move and glass and move just to pick apart all the nooks and crannies. But, um, and then, um, overall, I find that I just like, you can't overuse your glass. Um, it's, uh, I, I get in a habit of like, you know, like wanting to go from a to B, you know what I mean? Um, like, okay, I'm done glassing here. I'm going to move a mile up the ridge to this next basin. I want to check out. And, um, it's, I think it's really important to, you know, every time you can see something, pull out your binos. Like every time a new little bit of country access like is available to you, pull out your binos or just a little sliver through the trees to see the hillside, you know, on the, across the drainage, just pull it up and look real quick. And, uh, it's one of the reasons I've kind of always been reluctant to use a bino harness. Cause I, I like that, uh, Rick young one where it's very, just, you just, there's no, it's very easy just to pull the glass up real quick. I found with, a um, been use, using that FHF harness the last few years. And there's times, um, I don't have the binos attached to anything inside the harness. So I'll just carry them in my hand. If my weapon's strapped to the pack, that way they're just like, they're right there and very, very easy to, um, at, you know, access and use and, and, um, take advantage of them. That mental picture thing too, as you like, just get to a spot, um, and kind of take a mental note of <clears throat> what the surrounding area looks like. For me, that'll be things that'll cue uh, me spotting something to where I'll have that mental image and I'll be like, there wasn't a bush in that opening over there. And then it ends up, it's because a deer fed out into it or whatever the case is. So if you um, take that mental picture and then you do your scan with your binos and, you know, 45 minutes later, you just happen to notice something in an area because it didn't look like that before. That's typically where, you know, you're going to pick stuff up. Mm, that's good. I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way. I like that. The bino harness thing. Um, I've been using the outdoor vision for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've used a, a ton of the different bino harnesses on the market, including the FHF, the Kodiak trip. The first time I did it up there, um, that's when I went away from any bino harnesses that are open on any side, because I was getting the alders in my binos and, uh, you know, the weather up there obviously changes every five seconds, but getting snow, sleet, that kind of stuff inside the binos where the outdoor vision is fully, um, 
enclosed. So you're not getting all that. The other thing is like how often, you know, you're, you're hiking uphill and you're huffing and puffing, and then you pull out your binos. And if you have them exposed, you know, not in a harness that I've had stuff where you're, you know, you're getting that condensation on them because, you know, your body's all hot. It's cold out in the morning. Um, and you're going uphill and then you stop the glass and you're like, well, I gotta wipe everything off. Yeah. Um, and what you mentioned, Steve, about having them really accessible. A lot of times if I'm in a position where I'm like kind of moving from glassing spot to glassing, spot, I'll just keep them open for the reason you were describing where it's, you know, they're really quick in and out. I can grab Drop them. them and, out. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you, um, leave them like attached to the harness or are they kind of free? Like you just take them out and set them on the ground. Um, it's funny you mentioned that because like last year, um, the hunt with my brother, he was using, uh, victory SFs, non range finding binos. I was using RFs. So with the range finder, the, and this will be kind of a long winded version of why I have to explain, but, um, I didn't realize how often when I'm talking somebody into an animal, uh, how often I use the range. And my hunting partner was the one that uh, pointed this out. But, uh, last year it would be, I'd spot an elk and I'm like, Oh, he's down here. And I was trying to describe it to my brother and he was looking, you know, 500 yards too far, or too short kind of thing. But when I would say is a 650, you know, I'd hand him mine, he would range and go, Oh, now he's in, at least in the ballpark. And it kind of walked him in using the range as a way to, to figure it out. Cause I know everybody has their own technique on describing an area, but it's pretty common. You know, he's by the tree. And you're like, well, there's a million trees. <laughs> <See> that bush? <laughs> that bush? It is yeah. funny to, to be in that scenario. Like I just remember on the bear hunt this year, Mark, where yeah. somebody was looking at a bear and like nobody, it took like 10 minutes to get on the freaking bear. Cause there just wasn't anything <laughs> distinct on the hillside of like this tree or that rock and all kind of like, you know, it's like, Oh, look at that white thing over there. Like, what, what freaking white thing. There's a hundred of them, you know, that's yeah. uh, kind of funny. I've never thought of using, uh, you know, using rangefinder binos is fairly new to me just the last few years on and off. And I've never thought about using that as a tool to walk somebody in. That's a pretty good idea. That is. Yeah. My hunting partner was the one that uh, I was using SFs. I think this was two years ago and we were uh, blacktail hunting in the late season archery. And we came to a really open area. And a lot of the time that's not the case, you know, with blacktails that you're hunting a lot of the real thick stuff. And we were looking really long ways off and um, there was bucks fighting and it was, there was a lot of stuff going on. And every time I was trying to talk him into something, he was like, how far? And so then I would pull out my handheld and range stuff. And that's when I it kind of dawned on me, like, Oh, we use this a lot more than I ever realized the, you know, you taking a range and saying, okay, the fir tree that's at eight fifty, go to three o'clock from that. And then, you know, it just narrows the field and the window that you're looking in a lot quicker. The more I use RFs, the more I like them. And I, it's same thing when I go to not having them, I'm like literally searching for the button. Like I don't realize how often I'm ranging <laughs> stuff. And yeah. uh, that's just another reason now where they make even more sense to me. Yeah, I had a, a, this was probably six, eight years ago. I was guiding a mule deer hunter and uh, he, there was three bucks and they were kind of doing hot laps around each other, kind of not really sparring, but like, you know, sizing each other up kind of thing. And looking back, I should have just told him a yardage, but he had to have an exact yardage before he would shoot. And so I I was looking with binos and I'm sitting there going, okay, he's the buck on the left and he's 332. And then they would move and he would say, I need another range. And so I was frustrated, but I was going back and forth between binos and a handheld and with range finding binos, obviously then you're just able to say, okay, now he's the buck on the right and he's 334. 
<laughs> you know, even though it's yeah. a real minimal change in the yardage, yeah. but um, just being able to do everything all in one. And for me, range finding binos, the biggest benefit is during archery season. Um, when a bull's coming in um, and I'm just not very bright, so I can't remember all the yardages when I try to range everything in a setup. So being able to quickly, um, like what Steve was describing, having your um, bino or range finder accessible, I leave my harness open and my string can clear, you know, I shoot that way uh, when I'm shooting in the backyard or whatever with my harness open, like the biggest platform that I'm going to deal with. Um, but I just get too nervous to where I've had times where with a handheld, I'm trying to range, whether it's a bull coming in and I hit the tree behind them or the brush in front of them. And I'm like, I know that's not 22 yards. It's like 40. Um, and then same scenario, like on a mule deer hunt, you're on a stock and all you can see is an antler tying, you know, and you're trying to get a range and you're like, I don't know if I got the sagebrush 20 yards past him or 20 yards in front of him, where with a range finding bino, I can see that red donut, you know, for the range and it's, I can hit him on the nose or on an antler tip and know that's the exact yardage. So I've just had too many times in crunch time where range finding binos were the ticket instead of, you know, having to go back and forth. I talk to people all the time about, they like to have they'll just bring a handheld on the final stock. And I, I, to me, that's a nightmare waiting to happen because I've had too many times where I'm, I pick something up in that, you know, last hundred yards with range finding binos that there's no way I would have seen with a monocular. Yeah. Have you, I've always been hesitant to use range finding binos for archery. I just like, to me, and when I visualize I'm about ready to kill an animal, it's like kind of holding my riser in my hand and ducking my head behind it just so to hide the movement. And I just bring up my, you know, a handheld in my right hand and just click a range and then, and then shoot. Um, I always just thought there's just more movement going on with the binoculars. And I, and people, I talk to people about this all the time. And to me, it's the same amount of movement, but I move less with them because of what I'm describing where, uh, say elk, I got my bow in my left hand, the bulls coming in and they seem to come in the window. You weren't expecting them to. And I always have, uh, whether I'm calling or if I'm shooter, I always have my range finding binos resting on my top limb and I'm, you know, ranging as one's coming in. But then when it seems like it never fails, they get within 60 and there's like that, you know, they're not sure kind of thing if they want to come any further um, and getting ranges at those distances with uh, handheld and having to go back and forth. Typically I'm not using the binos as much to be like, is the bull big enough? Usually I'm like, I'm going to shoot him no matter what. Um, but it's again, I've had scenarios where if a bull's got his head peeked around a tree and all you have is like part of his antlers and his nose or whatever, being able to range that so that when he takes that next step, you know, you've got an accurate range because I know I've screwed it up where I tried to range the ground in front of where I think they're going to go. But I, I shot the laser 15 yards past, you know, where, where he actually stepped to. And uh, it's more so on deer where I've whiffed and I'm like, you range it afterwards. And you're like, man, if I'd have known he was... 40 instead of 55, <laughs> I feel like I'd have made the shot, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but to me, it, and I actually showed an outfitter this, this year at one of the shooting schools, he was saying exactly what you described, Steve, that, you know, with a bow, I just feel like, you know, it's less movement. And so I put my harness on and um, I acted like I was holding my bow and I went back and forth showing him the difference in movement with uh, the range finding binos versus the handheld. And I just, uh, it, not everybody, it's going to work different for everybody, but for me, it's the least amount of movement because I can, you know, once the bull's in that 
uh, within archery distance. I've already either already ranged him or I can get that last range that I need. And very quickly, I'm doing it right now. Obviously you can't see it, but um, put them back in my open harness. That's another thing about harnesses that um, I like harnesses that fold forward like that or vision because of this situation. When I need to put them back in, I can basically drop them in the, the hole and not have to fiddle with pulling the flat back in order to get them in. Um, so it's just less, you know, that's going on. And then even with it open, I can absolutely come to full draw and not have to worry about even if I have to lean out my, you know, my string clearing or any of that. The other thing, like on a mule deer stock, um, I had this last year, I was crawling for like the last hundred yards. And so with like <clears throat> the, the Rick Young harness that you're talking about, Steve, you can obviously take the bottom part and wrap it around the objective so that it's not going to bounce. But with a harness, I can crawl, you know, and I'm not worried about them falling out um, because they're, you know, the lids on. Um, but then once I get close, I can, and I'm not crawling anymore. If I'm, if I come up to my knees to, to make the shot or if I'm back to standing, you know, I can flip that forward, pull out range and shoot really quick. Um, I just found that with handhelds, I was having to do it more often, even though it's smaller, you know, to get to, and a lot of guys say they like to range and then drop it. Well, I've also had with a handheld where I range, go to drop it, and then it hits my, my pack or whatever. And it makes a loud noise instead of just, you know, quietly putting it away um, and moving slow, you know, that dropping of a rangefinder versus just slowly putting them back in your harness. To me, it's less movement because you're going straight from your eyes down to your chest. I run my harness pretty high on my chest where I see a lot of guys, they run them down, you know, lower on their stomach and I've said too many times where I'm like running downhill to try to cut the distance on a bull or whatever. And my finals were like slapping me in the gut. And it's like, that's not very comfortable. So um, same thing with on a final stock. If I've got that harness pretty high on my chest and I'm crawling, I can, uh, I'm not worried about it tilting forward. You know, it's a pretty flat tight platform to my chest and um, I can get to them easily, but I'm not fighting with them the whole time. Well, I get, I got, I got some stuff to play with now, JD. <laughs> I do a lot of stuff too. Um, I actually had a guy back when I had my retail business. Um, he came to look at binos and out in the front of my shop, there's a bunch of bark dust and he got on the ground and was crawling around because he was trying out bino harnesses. <laughs> and I was just kind of blown away that he was just crawling around in the bark dust one, but that I never thought about that for a test for a harness. Obviously that's a scenario that you could use it, you know, in the field, but you know, a lot of the time we're just looking at, you know, does it fit my binos and is it cool, you know, mm -hmm. um, but not the things that are actually going to affect you on a hunt. Going back to kind of uh, cult strategy or honestly, just the use of uh, optics as you're glassing. Um, talk about moving your optics versus moving your eyes, meaning staying with optics in position and using that field of view, moving your eyes versus moving the physical optic that you're using and how does that apply for you? Yeah. And that's where that was what, something that was really hard for me to understand when people tried telling me to use uh, a tripod, you know, I thought, well, I hold pretty steady and, you know, I use really good binos so I can see the full field of view. You can see so much more in the field of view if the bino is stationary, if it's on a tripod or whatever, so that it's not moving. Um, but picking apart that entire field of view, that's where obviously you see the big differences in a low-end optic versus a high-end optic. You can go get $100 binos that if you look right down the center of them, they're going to be relatively clear. But as you get to the edges is where you know that the clarity is such a big deal and you should have edge-to-edge -edge clarity. 
a lot of people don't realize if you're looking through a binocular that has any distortion in the image, your eyes are trying to focus on the clear and the blurry at the same time. If you think about a camera trying to focus on a limb that's up close versus, you know, across the Canyon, um, that's the times that you're going to get that really bad eye fatigue. So I know I've experienced it a lot where, you know, you sit down in your glass for an hour and the person with you is like, Oh, my eyes feel like they're going to come out of my head. I just have a headache. And it's because, you know, their eyes are sitting there fighting that whole time trying to um, focus on the clear and the blurry at the same time. So one using a, a really high quality optic is going to help you be able to glass longer. Um, but using that entire field of view, that's one thing that I try to tell people when they're picking an optic, um, obviously it's tough at a store or whatever, cause it's usually not that far to be able to tell, but in an actual glassing scenario, that's when you're going to see, you know, if you or your buddy has better binos, because when you look through that field of view, one, is it, totally crystal clear. And do you have any of that eye fatigue where your eyes are just trying to focus on clear and blurry at the same time? And obviously the, the more use of that full field of view, the, the less movement you need to make your better chances of catching something like it, it can make a practical difference too, not just in fatigue and how long you can glass and how comfortable it is, but honestly, just in what you see. And to me, it makes it easier um, to feel like you really tore apart an entire area and made sure that there is or is not something there. Because if you're able to stick your binos on a tripod and you can see an entire section of a hillside, um, you know, I'll pick apart the, that entire area. And I usually, I don't know why I'll just go to the, the edges and usually the top edges and kind of go like a book um, top to bottom um, in that image. And then until I've peeled that entire area part is I won't move on into the next section of the hillside, unless obviously something, you know, comes running out where it's obvious. Yeah. That, that we kind of touched on that earlier, but in terms of almost like gritting a hillside, some guys talk about working top to bottom there, but you're talking about even within your field of view, you're kind of doing it, reading a book, you're starting top left and then working away across to the right and down within the field of view. That's one thing that I think people, they hear the grid and they're like, okay, I just need to go top, bottom, left, right, whatever. Um, but if you're not doing it when within the entire field of view that you can see when you're, you, know, you first stop the binos on an area, you're not actually gridding the hillside. And that's where going slower, you know, I've, I just feel like I pick up so much more game doing it that way. Um, and back to that kind of mental image of what you're looking at. If you first look at a hillside and, you know, it's pretty open and then all of a sudden there's a blob somewhere, obviously you're going to be drawn to that. Um, but it's just so much easier. Uh, I, I get this a lot with people who use high magnification binos. So 15s, uh, they say they can handhold them. And I'm just, I just wish more people would, um, even with like an eight, put it on a tripod and see the difference in how much you're able to pick up. If you'll be patient leave them on the tripod and just absolutely dissect that entire image before you move on. Um, because I know uh, I used to miss out on it a lot until I just forced myself to finally listen to the guys that are far better hunters than I am and, you know, use a tripod all the time. And uh, it's just made it to where, um, you know, I just feel like I see a lot more gain. Given how much you've talked about tripods, would you rather have a, a moderate uh, a moderate binocular with a tripod compared to a high-end binocular without a tripod then? Oof. Um, that's a really tough one. I, I am, because of my background with my dad guiding and getting exposed to high quality optics, I really only used crummy stuff for a very short period, you know, in college. And then just said, I've, I've never, I will skimp on basically anything else. Um, 
the tripod thing is one that people usually end up skimping on. That's also frustrating because you, you finally talk somebody into glassing from a tripod, but they go by the cheapest tripod that they can get. And so you just don't have a stable platform. So you're not giving the spotting scope or binos, um, you know, you're not using them uh, to their full advantage. So uh, that's tough because I, I really don't ever downgrade in optics. I, the, the two that I'm are either in my harness are either victory SF or victory RF. And um, I can't think of the last time that I uh, like outside of college that I used something, you know, lesser than that. Mm. So it's just worth it. You'll skimp elsewhere and invest your money in the optics. I will buy a lesser quality, you know, a lower priced gun, a lower priced bow, <laughs> lower priced clothes. There's kind of the list goes on on things that I would rather um, have lesser stuff than optics. Got it. Um, do you feel sticking on binoculars for a second? Do you feel that most hunters set them up properly or do you tend to see you're working with a guy and he's describing maybe an issue or eye fatigue or something like that. And you come to find out like he hasn't properly set up the diopter or what have you for his eyes. Yeah. And because even amongst brands, um, different binoculars will have a different way of adjusting. So um, uh, the victory RF is a good example. The, on the right side is what adjusts the clarity of the reticle. So the readout of the rangefinder. I've had more than one person that thought that they were adjusting the right eye with that. So um, and it, but it, the thing that's most difficult about optics, it's not like I can set them up, get the clearest image and hand them to you and say, <laughs> right. those should be perfect for you. Cause obviously we all have different eyesight. Um, but if you're able to show people, you know, the, the proper way of, uh, of adjusting. And uh, I try to use the example. I just tell people it, it should be as crisp as it can possibly be. If you're using a high quality optic, there shouldn't be anywhere that you're kind of having to fight with it. Um, another, the most common one that I see is every person who grabs binos, they immediately spin the eye cups up and, um, that, that may work for you, but everybody's eyes are inset differently. So, um, the proper eye relief for you and I is going to be totally different. Um, so I actually on some binos run the cups all the way down. Now, a lot of people that use eyeglasses or sunglasses are going to run them all the way down because that's the proper distance for them. Um, but just because of the way like my head is shaped, I guess, and where my eyes sit. A lot of the time I run cups all the way down. And, um, I I think people just see people do that. And so they feel like that's how you're supposed to do it, but everybody is different. You have to play with it to where, you know, Mark might be on, you know, the first click up and Steve might be all the way out. I might be all the way down. You know, it's just different for everybody. So, um, you have to, there's just not a one size fits all approach to, setting up a bino to trying to getting it as clear as you can, you know, it has to fit for you. Yeah. That's certainly the case with Steve and I, as we pass stuff back and forth, that's the first <laughs> yeah. thing we, each of I'm us all, do is change it. I'm all the way in and I feel like Mark, you're out, aren't you? Yeah. Like half yeah. out usually half out. Yeah. Walk us through uh, how you set up the adapter. You're out there in the field. Someone hands you some binos. Um, how are you setting that up? So for me, um, I get this question a lot. I broke my left orbit in college. So my left eye, I don't see, I have 20, 20 vision, but if I try to set up a bino the way that, um, you know, that would say to on the box, when I go back to both eyes, it's going to be blurry. So for me, I'm never doing closing one eye and, and setting it up that way. Cause I can't. So I'm pretty unique in that. Um, it just doesn't work to set things up that way. Now, um, again, because everybody's eyes are different and because of things like RF that you have, you do have the ability to adjust um, 
each barrel, but that you're mainly using the diopter to, to just set your focus. Um, the most common thing that I see is like what we were talking about where one guy hands it to another and they're like, it's blurry. Well, one, you got to just try to play with back and forth, you know, what's the clearest. Um, and the other thing is trying to, um, when, when you're doing it, do it on the same object. You know, if you're with somebody and you can find a tree that's 50 yards away, try to do it on something like that. That's pretty easy. It's a big giant tree. You can both say, is it clear or not? You know, that's pretty basic. Um, but I'll see people, one guy's trying to focus them at 10 yards and the other guy's looking a thousand yards off. Obviously that's going to be just totally different. Um, the other one is vinyl harnesses, folks that are like, you know what, I, every time I pull them out there, it's moved. I didn't realize that, um, it's just second nature for me. When I pull my binos out of my harness, my middle finger is on the diopter and I am adjusting immediately. Um, it's just the ha a habit that I've gotten into. Um, but a lot of people, they pull them out and they're like, oh, it's blurry. And then they pull them away from their head and they look at both, you know, and they're trying to figure it out that way. Um, but setting them up, it's because everybody sees so differently. That's what's difficult as far as there's not even within like our lines of binos, um, setting each individual lineup is different. Um, I've got uh, RFs sitting right here and um, pulling them out. Like I said, my pointer finger or my middle finger automatically go to the diopter. So um, on, on most binoculars, there's if there's the individual eye adjustment, there's going to be a plus and minus on that barrel. Um, a lot of people do see better out of one eye than the other. And a lot of times it's their dominant eye. So you will be uh, you know, left or right of that center dot that is on the binocular. Um, for me, my right eye is usually on the left side of that marking. And then my left eye is in the middle. So um, that's the kind of the hard part for describing what works for people is that everybody's is so individual. You can't just do kind of a blanket setup. If I say JD, like what are glassing mistakes that you see hunters make? Anything that comes to mind there that we haven't covered? Um, really just the going too fast is the biggest thing. We have covered that a lot, but, um, people just get impatient to where, you know, I, I know I'm the exact same way. I want to move on and keep hiking and try to see a new country. But, um, I just have had more times where if you just will sit longer, you're going to see more, um, and going slower, you know, rarely are you hunting and you're like, man, I wish I'd have gone faster and bump them quicker than I did. Um, so just going slow, um, in your setup and, the biggest thing, it, because I'm kind of an optics geek, I've never once in 10 plus years of doing this, never once had anybody say, I wish I'd have gone with a less expensive one. It just doesn't happen. So um, just when people are asking about, it doesn't matter uh, what configuration, what it is, and everybody has a budget, whatever is you know most important to them. But like I said, I'm not going to skimp on optics. I, people might make fun of me for uh, one piece of gear that I have that isn't as nice, but optics isn't going to be one of them. So um, just choosing the right optic. And if, if it means waiting a few months or having to go another season without getting the binos that you really, really want or the spotting scope or whatever, um, just saving your money and making that investment is going to pay dividends in the long the long run. I mean, I talk to people about it all the time that you want to buy a, a binocular or a spotting scope or whatever the case is that you can give to your kids in 20, 30 years. And they're going to still be a really high quality optic where if you get, you know, the cheapest one or the one that's on sale or whatever, 
you know, you're more than likely going to end up upgrading. And, you know, 20, 30 years from now, your kid's going to go, thanks a lot, dad, for this uh, sweet set of binos that I have to give away at a garage sale. Uh, that brings to mind a question that uh, actually a listener brought up to me and I didn't have a great answer for, but with rangefinding binoculars becoming um, more common and then technology also upgrading, and maybe this has already happened like in the, in the RF lineup from Zeiss, but do you foresee or has it happened where essentially you can take alpha glass that can last a lifetime, but that the technological advantages of range finding can be upgraded through things like software and firmware within that optical um, binocular? Yeah. So that's definitely already a thing. Um, I know we have a light transmission standard, so we won't come out with something that's below a certain percentage. Um, but like with the Victory RF, because it's Bluetooth compatible, and I don't want to, I don't mean to get too specific on just our stuff. I know we're just talking, talking optics, but um, when the Victory RF came out, um, the close yardage was 16 yards. And some bow hunters were like, well, I want it to go to 10 because out of a tree stand, I want to be able to range all my lanes, you know, and make sure that it's, you know, 11 or whatever. Um, and so we did a software update and all you had to do was press the update in the app. And now it's years start at 11. So um, that will continue to happen. The platform itself isn't likely to change. Um, it took a lot of years to, to design the victory RF. So more than likely the upgrades um, that are going to happen you'll be able to press the, the app update and they'll be in your bino. Um, some brands come out with a new model each year and to, and to have the latest greatest, you have to continue to buy a new model and sell last year's um, where with ours, you know, that's not likely to change. If something's going to change, it'll be a software update, you know, and you press the button and it's inside your binos. Some people do get scared away by that though. And that's what one thing that I wish people uh, understood is that you don't have to use the app. You don't have to use the ballistic capability. Like I said, I range finding binos for me, the most important thing. And the first um, time I used victory RFs, it was before I worked for Zeiss, I bought a pair for me and I took a March trail in Colorado. All I wanted was angle compensation. You mentioned tripod a whole bunch. Uh, what tripod do you use? And along with that, what uh, specific tripod head? Um, so the Suray T024SK, I think is the, the legs and then the Suray VA5 fluid head. Um, that's a shorty, you know, that, um, I'm only five, nine. So it go, I can at standing height, I can crouch down a little bit and with an angled spotting scope, I can still use it. But obviously, um, because that's a lighter weight, compact tripod, it's not great at its tallest. I'm almost always using it with the legs, you know, wrapped around my, my waist kind of deal and the front leg pointing, you know, between my legs. Um, little stuff though, like just spinning around if I'm using 15s or just glassing with binoculars, spinning the head around so that the arms in the front. Um, so you're not fighting that with an angled spotting scope. It doesn't matter as much if that arm is coming back towards you, but um, especially long periods of glassing for me, it's just easier to run with that arm in the front. JD, this has been good. Uh, we honestly didn't get to talk gear as much and thankfully uh, we have chances to do that in other forums and we have to have you back to answer some questions that come up from it. But man, we've covered a lot of good ground. Um, is there any resources you want to point guys to or I know you're not probably like personally huge on social media, but anyways, like if guys want to follow you or what have you that you do want to share? Yeah, I'm um, the social thing. I'm not, I don't do much unless it's for work. But um, the biggest thing I would caution people is 
what you see on social media or on the forums. You know, uh, I hear that all the time. I read on a forum or I saw on Instagram or whatever. To me, that's really worrisome because you don't know if the XYZ person was paid to do that quote unquote review. Um, my advice is to talk to people who do it for a living. Um, that's what I spend all day doing. Um, call you guys, talk to somebody who, you know, is, it should have a much higher um, optics IQ than your average person. Um, and that can speak to and compare multiple brands and why, you know, uh, certain products are better than another because of uh, personal experience. Um, it's always painful for me if I'm at a store, you know, a, a big chain or whatever, and I'm in street clothes and nobody knows I work for Zeiss and I hear some 18 year old counter kid telling somebody some really terrible information. I always just want to walk over and try to help. But uh, yeah, I would just be seek out people that don't have a vested interest in steering you to one specific thing um, that it doesn't absolutely benefit them. Call a retailer and talk to them, talk to people like you guys that don't just have optics experience. You use it in the field and you use it, you know, on a variety of different types of hunts uh, all over um, the West and um, to where the number one thing I ask people when they say, what should I get? I, I always tell them, tell me about you. What are you using them for? How are you using them? Because there's not just one size fits all for every type of hunting and for, for every trip. Well, that's a wrap on this one today, guys. I hope you picked up some information in this episode that you can put into practice in the field real soon as your hunts approach. As always, if you have anything for us, send an email to podcast at exomontgear.com. We'd love to hear your guest suggestion, topic suggestion, or question for a future show, and we'll talk to you soon.